Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish. Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. As a Sirius XM and CNN host, I'm known for speaking, but frankly, I read for a living. I need to know what to say, and so I consume over two dozen newspapers and websites daily. I read opposing views and studies and court cases and orders and op-eds just so I can discuss current events on radio and television. But my favorite reading? Books. Old school. And my favorite interviews? are with book authors. Book Club with Michael Smirconish is now in session. Hey, it's not often that I get to call upon Mr. Frank Sinatra to help me introduce a radio guest. I'm going to take full advantage right now. Ladies and gentlemen, Frank Sinatra. Tommy, come out and take another bow. (laughs) Tom Gleason, ladies and gentlemen. There he is. That's my man. Tommy's funny, isn't he? He's a, he's a marvelous guy, Tommy. Is. He's... Where is he? I'll take a bow, pal. Hey, this, this is a funny man. He is a funny and man. A nice man. And a nice man. And Tom Dreesen, may I say, has, has lived a fairy tale. And fortunately for all of us, he has written about it. It's called, and I'm showing it, Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the... Uh, Stage and Sinatra, my journey from streets and saloons to the stage and to Sinatra. As a little boy, 
He carried a shoeshine box into taverns as Sinatra would sing from jukeboxes. As an adult, he toured with Sinatra for 14 years as his opening act, and boy, does he have stories. Hey, Tommy, it's, it's great to welcome you to the POTUS channel. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Michael. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, Me too. I, I devoured the book. I, I actually, this may sound odd, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start on a, on a downer. You were a pallbearer for Frank Sinatra. You were called upon at Sinatra's funeral in the presence of Gregory Peck, in the presence of Kirk Douglas, in the presence of, of Nancy Reagan and Jack Lemmon and Quincy Jones and Robert Wagner and so many others to have to tell a joke. What did that feel like? Well, I didn't have to tell a joke. I, I was one of the speakers, but I knew Frank would want me to make them laugh. It was a really a solemn, uh, obviously, service. And the, the who's who of the world was in that church, you know. And, uh, and I knew that when it was my turn to speak, every night before I went on stage, I'd walk by his dressing room and he'd say, you going on tonight, Tommy? And I'd say, yeah, he'd say, be funny and be brief. <laughs> you know, he's, <laughs> funny and be brief so I could hear him in my mind that he would want me to make them laugh you know and so uh I came up with a story that just rocked the church because there was so much in front of me you know I mean that that uh, after after the 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 communion the choir starts singing Ave Maria and then after the Ave Maria I thought I was going to walk out I was the first one walking out and the priest held me back and then the church got very quiet so quiet you could hear the pews crackling and over the loudspeaker, you heard Frank's voice singing, put your dreams away for another day. And the whole church burst into tears and I'm facing them and they're sobbing, you know, and, uh, and then when they finished crying, when the song was over, the priest motioned me to come out. <laughs> and I thought of all the years that I opened for Frank Sinatra in front of 40,000 people in Hawaii, 20,000 people in arenas all around the country, which was always difficult. This will be the most difficult performance of my career, you know? And, uh, and and I and I told a funny story about Frank. That do you mind? Did. Do you mind telling it here? I'd, I'd everybody would love to hear it. What what was the story that you told at Sinatra's you, funeral? Okay, you first have to know that Frank Sinatra, wherever you went, he tipped a hundred dollars. If you brought him a cup of coffee, he gave you a hundred dollars. If you if you uh, uh, you know if you you know whatever it is, he brought him a pack of camels, he gave you a hundred dollars. He'd slip it to the waiter. Uh, anyhow, so and, and there's a great and this isn't the story I told at church, but there's a great story about Frank coming out of Mame San restaurant in Los Angeles and the uh, uh, valet Parker pulled his car up and Frank said, what's the biggest tip you ever got? And the kid said $100 and Frank gave him two $100 bills. And before he pulled out, he said, by the way, who gave you the $100? He said, you did last Friday, Mr. Sinatra. <laughs> so, but, so now the whole church knew that. But now my story was that for those of you in the church that like me who who were with Frank Sinatra, you know that he loved staying up till dawn. And he did that, which was a lot of fun for me for the first 10 years. But after about 10 years, he kind of wears you out. So one night we landed in Fort Lauderdale. We we're going to do the Sunrise Theater and do three one-nighters before we opened at the Sunrise Theater. We we're going to do Fort Myer, uh, Daytona, uh, Daytona, and Sarasota. But the first night we had off. And so the private jet landed, squad cars and limousines rushed us to the hotel. The moment we pulled in front, Frank jumped out of the limo and head straight in for the lounge. And I snuck out and went up to my room. And I said, now I got to my room. I thought, great, I'll get up and play golf early in the morning. I wasn't there five minutes and I heard a pounding on the door. I opened the door as a big redheaded bellman, looked like a linebacker for the Miami Dolphins, a big guy with a crew cut. He said, Mr. Dreesen, Mr. Sinatra wants you downstairs in the lounge. 
And I reached in my pocket and I pulled out $20. I said, could you tell him you couldn't find me? He backed up. He said, Mr. Sinatra gave me $100 to tell you he wants you downstairs in the farm. <laughs> now, the whole church is laughing. And I said, couldn't you tell him that you couldn't find me? He said, if you resist and I had to drag you down there, he'd give me $200. <laughs> I knew this guy was going to drag me down there. So I said, okay. And I went down and he said, hey, pal, let's have some fun. And of course, we stayed up to dawn again. But the church needed a laugh at that moment, I believe. You know, the church runs through the book. It, it runs through the book from your days as, as an altar boy all the way to your being a, a pallbearer for Frank Sinatra. And one of the other stories that's in the book that I loved is that on many occasions you would go and stay with him in Palm Springs. And as you paint the picture, Tommy, there are bungalows and the bungalows are named for some of his greatest hits. By the way, did you have a favorite bungalow that he would put you in? Yeah, I, I liked uh, Tender Trap. You know, for some reason, it was just a fun you know, the, the bungalows are named New York, New York, Strangers in the Night, Tender Trap, My Way, you know, <laughs> named after a song. But uh, a lot of times, if Admiral Shepard was down there, I'm an ex-Navy man, I was an enlisted man, and Admiral Shepard, you know, the first man in space and on the fifth lunar mission landed on the moon. You know, he oftentimes would stay next to me. And I just, we had such fun. Him and I played golf together. And for me to uh, play golf with an admiral, you know, I'm an enlisted man in the service, and be able to say to an admiral, that was a dumb shot, Al. You know, that really made me feel kind <laughs> of... Well, the story, the story that you tell in the book, you tell a lot of stories in the book, but the one that I loved is that uh, on a particular weekend, the, the Catholics among the guests go to church with Mr. S. And yeah. you correct me if I'm wrong, but it's you, it's 007, Roger Moore, it's Gregory yeah. Peck, it's Frank Sinatra, and you, you all go to church together that day and, and delivered the readings. Well, what happened was Frank said, um, you know, on, on the Saturday night, hey, we're all going to church tomorrow. And, you know, and so all the, the Protestants and the Jews were real excited. They didn't have to go. The Catholics. <laughs> so, so we all we, we get there and Frank on the way there, Frank said, Tom, we're going to read from the gospel. I said, why? He said, well, they let lay people read the gospel and they want us to do that. Now, I'm, I quick want to go through it because I'm a former altar boy. And I know there's words in there that even the priest can't pronounce. Sometimes. <laughs> right. So. I, I'm trying to go over the whole, what I have to do. Now, the priest, we sat up on the, on the altar, and the priest said, reading from today's gospel will be Mr. Frank Sinatra, Mr. Roger Moore, Mr. Gregory Peck, and Mr. Tom Dreesen. And the whole church began to buzz, who's Tom Dreesen? You know? And, <laughs> and then I, had to follow, I had to follow Gregory Peck. When Gregory Peck reads the gospel, people say, didn't he write this? You know, <laughs> that magic, magical voice. And then at the end of the at the end of the uh, the sermon, I mean, at the end of the mass, as you Catholics know, the priest will say, "Go, the mass is ended." But this time he said, "Before we go, some of you may have seen comedian Tom Dreesen on the Tonight Show talking about his Catholic school upbringing. Perhaps he'll honor us with a joke." And Frank said, "Get up, tell him a joke." Uh, I had to go to the lectern. I couldn't think of a joke I could tell in church to save my soul, you know. But I got up there and and, and I just all of a sudden I burst out. I said, "There was a priest in the Midwest." in the middle of mass, turned around and said to the congregation, I'm the priest in this parish and I make $200 a week and that's not enough. And the old church laughed. I said, then the bishop came out of the sacristy. He said, I'm the bishop in this diocese and I make $400 a week and that's not enough. And up in the choir, the organist started playing. He said, I'm the organist in this diocese and I make $2,000 a week and there's no business like show business. <laughs> no church is like you. <laughs> and I, I, I said, uh, no, Frank, Frank said, good job. I, 
let's get the hell out of here. I said, okay. <laughs> I, I loved the back of the house stories and insights of what it was like to travel in that orbit, especially for Tom Dreesen, who grew up one of eight siblings and truly grew up with nothing. And Tommy, I, I loved the, t- the detail, such as, as if I understood this correctly, typically you'd be traveling all over the country, but there were only three places you'd sleep. In other words, if it were on the eastern seaboard, it was going to be the Waldorf Astoria, even if that meant going all the way from Florida, or the Ambassador East in Chicago, or he'd be at home in the desert in Southern California. Yeah, he, he Frank liked familiarity. He liked things you know, around him, more so even when he got older. But uh, So if we were going to work western states, we would stay at his home and we'd satellite out in his private jet night after night into Denver, into you know, uh, Seattle, Washington, uh, those places. And, and if we w- went to the Midwest we, we, and we we're going to do St. Louis, Detroit, Omaha, Lincoln, Nebraska, one night, we'd see at the Ambassador East in Chicago. He loved it there. And then if we, in New York, <clears throat> if we were going to do Boston, Hartford, all the Eastern cities and uh, states, we would stay at the Waldorf Astoria, you know, and satellite out of there each night, you know, um, because he just liked that familiarity, you know. Tommy, I, I, I had the privilege of seeing Frank Sinatra perform several times. And what I now know is that when a guy like me has not yet reached his car after the show, you and Mr. S are already airborne in his jet. It had that kind of precision. Yeah, he, he, he used to leave the building like the house was on, like the place was on fire, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, he'd finish that last song, New York, New York, and he'd walk off stage and say, let's go, Tommy, and we'd jump in the limo and squad cars and limousines would rush us to the private jet. Moments later, we'd be flying over the venue. People weren't even in their cars yet on your, on your way to the next city, you know. Toward the end of his career, I will say he lingered more because now he, something that, that people used to say, uh, why doesn't Frank lay it down? You know, because he's got older, he's set for getting lyrics and stuff. But, you know, people came and 20,000 people came to see him. He once said to me, we'll quit going to see them, Tommy, when they quit coming to see us. You know, and he, toward the end of his career, he savored that. You know, he started, the interesting thing is Sinatra fans needed him. He, he, his songs were the soundtrack of their lives. You know, uh, they went steady to his music. They got married to his music. They got divorced to his music. They got remarried the second time around, you know, to his music. Uh, so his music was a soundtrack of their life, and they needed him. But toward the end of his life, I felt like he needed them as much as they needed him. You had uh, quite an introduction into the business. Shoeshine Boy, Newspaper Delivery, Bird Dog, and then Caddy. And it <laughs> seemed for a while like you were headed you were on a trajectory to be, you know, a, a, a CEO of an insurance company. And along the way, help me with this story, but was it through the JCs? My father, Tommy, was the president of the JCs in the community where I was raised. And through the JCs, you now take an interest in a, a community program that's an anti-drug program. And that's where you learn that you've got a skill set, that you're a funny guy. Well, you know, that I was wandering aimlessly going from job to job. I came out of the service after four years in the military and I had a wife, three kids and I, nothing I did fulfilled me, even though I would do things well, but it wouldn't fulfill me. And I actually was praying saying, God, what is it I'm supposed to be doing? I'd be in a bar at two o'clock in the morning with buddies of mine drinking beer saying, I don't belong here, but I didn't know where I belonged. And I kept praying. And 
I joined the JCs, the city group, as you pointed out, and I'm, I'm gee, I'm, I'm glad to hear your dad was the president of the JCs. It was a great organization. Um, and it taught you leadership training program, how to serve on a committee, how to chair a committee, uh, tackling the problems of that community uh, and, and, and uh, you know, and mass with all the other JCs and trying to solve those problems. One of the biggest problems in that community in those days in Harvey, Illinois, as it is today, were drugs and our youth. So I wrote a drug education program teaching grade school children the ills of drug abuse with humor. It's a concept I had and uh, getting the kids laughing and then planting the seeds of the ills of drug abuse. A guy was going to help me on this project, a white friend of mine. And, and uh, the night I proposed it to the JCs that they would sanction it, uh, a young black man joined the chapter, graduated from Norfolk State College, EI DuPont, recruited him into Chicago as a marketing rep. He came up and said, I'd like to help you with this project. And I said, gee, I'm sorry, I already got a guy. Well, the next day, my white friend said, gee, I can't do that, Tom, I got a new job. And I said, you always that black guy's name. Oh, yeah, Tim Reed. Now, you know, again, I'm praying for this. This, this uh, black guy, Tim Reed, and I s- sat down and we started working on a program. Went into the school systems. The program became number one in 50 states and in 22 foreign countries through JC Publications on how to teach drug education at an elementary school level. And a lot of it was Tim and I making the kids laugh and then playing music and everything. One day, a little eighth grade girl walking out of the classroom said, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. And the thought of a black-white comedy team intrigued us because no one had ever done that before. So we became America's first black-and-white comedy team in history shows we were the last. Uh, There were no comedy clubs in those days. So it was 1969. The Vietnam War was raging. You know, I had just gotten out of the service. The Vietnam War was raging. Um, uh, students were protesting all over America, race riots in every major city in America, including Harvey, Illinois, where I'm from, a lot, one of the largest race riots in the country. And in the middle of all that, Tim and I were trying to make people laugh. Uh, you know, we, we worked all black clubs in the North and the South. We worked all white clubs. We did prisons. We did anywhere there was racial tension. We would go there. We did 11 prisons in one year, colleges, high schools, uh, not preaching, just making people laugh. It was, and we wrote a book about that years ago called Tim and Tom on American Comedy in Black and White. Can I ask you about one of those black clubs? Because one of my favorite vignettes in your book is the Club Harlem in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And Tommy, you tell the story about how when you were on the bill at Club Harlem, you were expected to do a 10 o'clock at night show a 2 a.m. show, and then the one that I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall to see because of your description, the so-called breakfast show. What was the breakfast show? First of all, let me tell you how much impressed I am that you've read this book. I've done, I can't tell you how many interviews you read this book. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love the book. And, and my audience knows you're here only because I loved it. If I didn't, you wouldn't be here. By the way, it's called Still Standing. But I, I can tell you, this is on page 80. Club Harlem, Atlantic City. What happened at the breakfast show? The Club Harlem, first, I mentioned that Tim and I work what they call the Chitlin Circuit, black-owned, black-operated nightclubs. The 20 Grand in Detroit, the High Chaparral in, in uh, Chicago, the Burning Spear, the, the Sugar Shack in Boston. But when you made it to the Club Harlem, that was the apex of the Chitlin Circuit. That's, that was where all the major, major uh, black artists, you know, performed. And, and we, when we got there, it was they, normally in nightclubs. In those days, again, we were working nightclubs. There were no comedy clubs. And, and by the way, that was Atlantic City before they had gambling. Right. So nightclubs, uh, you know, you normally open on a Monday and close on a Saturday night, you know, or, or a Sunday night. At the Club Harlem, you opened on Saturday night and you closed on the following Friday. First show 
on Saturday night was 10, 10 p.m., as you pointed out. Second show was 2 a.m. Third show was 6 a.m., what they called the breakfast show. You know, it was, uh, and, and all the waiters and waitresses, the night people, the bartender would come there, but also all the pimps and their, and their, and their hoes would, would come from Newark, from uh, Philadelphia, from uh, Bronx, Queens, Brooklyn, Manhattan. They would bring them all down, you know, after, at the end of the weekend. And it was 1,300 people jammed, you know, and uh, the show would open up with Mama Lou Parks. It was a heavyset black woman with all these young uh, black guys and girls dancing to the songs of the, the, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, you know, rocking the room. They'd get it, get it going. There'd be a, a male singing group. And then there, uh, the Sons of Robin Stone, and then there'd be uh, a female singing group, uh, uh, Quiet Elegance. Then it would be comedy, and then it would be maybe OJ's, I mean, I'm sorry, OJ, uh, Smokey Robinson or The Temptations or The OJs, or, uh, you know, they would be the headliners. And anyhow, it was, it, was, it was a room that if you killed them there, and, and by the way, you better be funny, because they had seen the best. You know? They had seen the best. Well, how did they react? How did they react to you, the only white guy in the house? And the way you entered the stage, I thought was hysterical. Yeah, we would put we, we, we everywhere we went. Tim and I took racial stereotypes and just made made so much fun of all the stereotypes from the black point of view and from the white point of view. But we had the the the, the uh, major the MC. He would go out and say, "All right, you ready for some comedy? You all ready for some comedy?" And they'd probably say, "Okay, we got a comedy team from Chicago. This comedy team has never been here to the uh, 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 Club Harlem, and they've never been here to Atlantic City. Please welcome the comedy team of Tim and Tom." And Tim would walk out by himself, and he'd go up to the microphone and said, "We're really happy to be here. You know, we've not been to Atlantic City, and this is the first time appearing at the Club Harlem, and we really appreciate." And now people are mumbling, "We." I don't see we, and I'd slowly enter stage left, and a light would hit me. And all of a sudden, you hear all the people, uh oh, what do we got here? <laughs> Look out. And now I would slowly get my way up the stage, and I'd be looking in the audience and peeking in the audience, and Tim is still talking. And finally, I'd work my way to center stage, and Tim would say, Where you been, man? And I'd say, I don't see any of my people out there. And now the big laugh, Tim would say, no, I don't see any of your people out there either. And I'd get real close to them and put my arm around them and say, well, we better be funny. He'd say, what do you mean we, white man? And, of course, that would just <laughs> uh, Oh, man, there's so much here. I can't give it all away for, for free. But when we come back, I've got to ask about Sammy Davis Jr. Ladies and gentlemen, stay right where you are. Back with Tommy Dreesen right after this. This is the Book Club with Michael Smirconish podcast from Sirius X. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4 
Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app. For 14 years, he was Frank Sinatra's opening act. I'm here with comedian Tommy Dreesen, the author of Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. I, I do want to make sure that I, I get this in. Sammy Davis Jr. is the guy, it seems to me, who really gives you a break and there's a story in the book about how, and, and Tommy, this is the POTUS channel. When I'm not talking to comedian Tom Dreesen, I'm talking politics. And maybe that's why this story really jumped out at me. Sammy Davis Jr. <clears throat> was not held in good stead among some in his own community because he had befriended Richard Nixon. And yeah. this all happens at a time when you're opening up for Sammy Davis Jr. And, and he's on the down and out. You know where I'm going with this, with I got to be me. Do you mind telling that? Yeah, you, you, you had a little bit wrong there, Michael. I was touring with Tim Reed in those days. The first time I saw Sammy, I didn't meet him. But we were appearing at, at the Black Expo in Chicago. where It was like one week of, of, um, of uh, black businesses, you know, uh, 
and, and exchanging ideas and everything. And, and the whole week it was it culminated with a show. Now the show was in front of thousands of people, and and it was all again those kind of acts: Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, The Dells from Harvey, Illinois. Um, um, you know, um, you know, the Temptations, the OJs, all these wonderful acts uh, were appearing there. And we comedians stayed in the wings, and I was the only white guy there. But in case they needed to strike the stage, they said, get up, do five minutes while they strike the stage for the next act. Sammy, four months prior to that, had um, uh, appeared at the White House. Uh, President Nixon gave him an award, and he promised to do some things for the black community. That's why Sammy was there. Well, when President Nixon gave him the award, Sammy hugged him. But if you knew Sammy, Sammy hugged everybody. Sammy hugged stop signs. You know, he just, he, he was a <laughs> hugger. And, and, uh, and if he met you one time, and it, the next time you see you, Michael, how you, he, he was a hugger. So he hugged President Nixon. That picture was taken of him hugging President Nixon, and it was on the cover of Ebony and the cover of Jet Magazine. And Sammy became persona non grata in the black community. And this was the first, t- first time he was appearing in front of a black audience since that picture was taken. And, and uh, so when he came in backstage, you know, again, this show went on all day long. So Tim and I stayed there six hours waiting to get on, but I didn't mind. I was seeing the greatest acts in the business. And, and you know, everybody was mumbling, Sammy Davis, Sammy Davis. He had his entourage with him and they all excited, you know, the great Sammy Davis Jr. here. He had flown all night long, like 3,500 miles on red eye to get there. And the MC goes out and said, ladies and gentlemen, you know, and we're all in the wings, Sammy Davis. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome, please. Sammy Davis Jr. And the arena began to boo and jeer and scream and thousands of people. Get off the stage, you Uncle Tom. You get off the, you, you white man's N-word. I mean, it just, it was, we froze. All of us got knots in our stomach thinking, oh, my God, the great Sammy Davis Jr. Now, he tried to get George Rhodes, his conductor, into the countdown and the music to drown out the boos. But George couldn't even hear him. He had the headphones on. It was the boos were so loud and deafening. Finally, Sammy just stood there and wouldn't leave that spot. And the MC came back out and said, "Ladies and gentlemen, what is our struggle all about? If it isn't about individual freedom, that we have the right to become a, a Democrat, a Republican, a Catholic, a Protestant, a Jew, isn't that what we're fighting for? The man came thirty-five hundred miles to sing for you. Doesn't he at least deserve to be heard?" Sammy went over and changed the sheet music, and went back and he sang one song. He's saying, I got to be me. And that night, those lyrics meant more than ever in his life. I'll go it alone if that's how it must be. I can't be right for somebody else if I'm not right for me. You know, whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong. Now, halfway through the song, all of us were looking and said, you see what he's doing? He's turning this crowd around, this hostile audience. And at the end of his song, he got a standing ovation. Wow. In my opinion, I've seen a lot of things in my years in show business. I've seen people take a tough crowd and get them back after 45 minutes or something. I've never seen anybody take a hostile audience and in one song get a standing ovation. It's the greatest performance I've ever seen in my life. God bless you, Sammy Davis Jr., wherever you are. You're a magnificent performer and a good friend. Love that story. Hang on, Tommy. One more quick break, and then I'm back with comedian Tom Dreesen. This is the Book Club with Michael Smirconish podcast from Sirius X. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. 
you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app. What must it have been like to open for Frank Sinatra, his opening act for Mr. S for 14 years? I'm back with Tom Dreesen, the author of Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. Tommy, I dropped your name uh, earlier this week on my radio program because we were talking about the lack of common experience and how it's driven the country apart, the computer enables all of us to lead such significantly different lives. And I said, I just read Tom Dreesen's memoir, Still Standing, and in it he describes, I think it's December 1975, the first time that you were on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. By the way, how many appearances did you make on The Tonight Show? 61 appearances. Is that a record? Well, I think uh, David Brenner did more than me. Uh, uh, Rodney probably did more than me. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, uh, but but yeah, I might be in the, in the ballpark of the top five. Okay, so the, the the point of the story is that you're you're backstage, and and you and I will not uh, take all the detail. I want people to read the book, but it's amazing what goes into and how many times you got bumped. But finally, you're behind the curtain, and you are ready to go out there. And and it, it's a crossroads moment for your career for not the least of which reason is that 26 million people were watching. It was all on the line for you. Can you, can you just say something about what that felt like inside? Yeah, first of all, in 1975, wherever you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh, yeah, have you ever been on Johnny Carson? And if you hadn't been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you just want a comedian. One of the parents <laughs> on the show, and, and, and by the way, and even after you did your first appearance, 
you, you had arrived in America, but you weren't, you hadn't arrived in our industry until Johnny brought you over and sat you down next to him. And that came like your third appearance. He wanted to make sure that you had what it took to continue on. But that moment, uh, there was a pathway to stardom as a stand-up comedian in 1975. One appearance on The Tonight Show, Freddie Prince got a sitcom the next day. I did one appearance, CBS signed me to a development deal the following day. A man named Lee Curlin in New York saw the show. But I'm in the unemployment line with a wife and three kids. I'm, I'm on my river and the comedy team had split up. This moment was beyond description of pressure. You're standing behind that curtain. Doc Severinsen's playing the music. And, and that's because they're in commercial break. The music stops and your heart stops. Because, I mean, you know, if you don't score here, this is what they call in sports, seize the moment. That one moment in time where, you know, you've got a chance to be all you can be, but you've got to score. And, and it's going to change your life. I'm, not only if I bomb here, I cannot make it in the business, but my mother had everybody back in Harvey, Illinois, watching the show, so I couldn't even go back home. You know? <laughs> so, so, anyhow, the music stops and you hear Johnny say, we're back now, and I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight because my next guest is making his first appearance on The Tonight Show. That line, I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight. He's saying this is his first time. Go and, easy. And it, yes, it, it, makes, it makes it, yeah, it makes it easier. But then they open that curtain. You know, first of all, when the music stops and they know you're back on, your heart stops because, you know, like you say, 26 million people watching. They open a curtain and you walk out it's like you're in an operating room. The bright lights, you can't see the audience are in the shadows. And you hit your spot on the floor and you got that first laugh. And it gets a laugh, and then you, you keep rolling, and you keep going. And pretty soon I got about seven or eight applause, you know, and finally I closed and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and did a, a joke that you'll get a kick out of my closing joke. But then Johnny, uh, when I got done, Johnny called me back through the curtain for another bow. And then he put that little circle like, like that. And, and I never stopped working from that moment on. I never stopped working at show business. In other words, that was, that was the seal of approval. That was the okay. symbol. But, but it opened the door because once you did that show, I started doing Dinosaur, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, Johnny Carson, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train, American Bandstand. I'm the only white comedian <laughs> Soul Train. Uh, I, uh, Sammy Davis Jr. saw me, took me on the road. Um, uh, you know, I'm, all these other artists wanted a comedian in front of them that could work clean. You know, I started touring with different artists, Smokey Robinson, Gladys Knight, Pips, Natalie Cole, Mac Davis, uh, Tony Orlando and Don, Frankie Avalon, James Darren. All these people wanted me to open for them because I wouldn't offend their audience, you know. And, and that's what that show did. And, and then finally, two Frank Sinatra, you know. Do you mind telling the joke, the last joke that you told on that first night, December 9, 1975, on the Tonight Show? Yeah, I said, you've been a marvelous audience. And, you know, because I, I was just, by that time, I was so thrilled because I scored and I said this is the, and I said in closing you've been a marvelous audience and this is uh, you know my first appearance on the tonight show and show business is a tough life so if you like me just if you like me and you're protestant say a prayer if you're catholic light a candle if you're jewish somebody in your family owns a nightclub tell them about me will you please <laughs> you've been a marvelous audience this is my first tonight show appearance and I gotta ask you a favor uh, if you liked me Show business is a tough life, as some of you know. So if you like me and you're Protestant, do me a favor and say a prayer for me. If you're Catholic, light a candle. If you're Jewish, somebody in your family owns a nightclub, tell them about me, will you? Great. 
I promise we're not giving it all away for free. There's just one more thing I need to ask of Tom Dreesen. By the way, the book is still standing. My journey from streets and saloons to the stage and Sinatra. Will you take me inside Chaplin's bar that night that you write about in the book? Paint sure. the picture. By the way, and it's a cheap plug. Get it on Amazon.com, folks, uh, and, and, and some Barnes & Noble bookstores, but Amazon.com, it'll be your house in two days. Thank you for the plug there, Tom sure. <laughs> and Michael. <laughs> uh, yeah, Frank Sinatra stayed up till dawn wherever we went on the road. Whether we were on the road or off the road, he stayed up till dawn, and he'd like you to hang out with him. So when I stayed at his compound, there was a bar down the street called Chaplin's Bar. Sidney Chaplin owned the bar. He actually was Charlie Chaplin's son, um, and he owned the bar. And, uh, and so we, Frank and I would go down there and what Frank would do, uh, Sydney would say, I'm going home. He'd give Frank the keys, you know, lock up. And of course, <laughs> Frank would always leave money there. And sometimes a bartender would stay if they, and they loved to stay because they knew they were going to get well taken care of by Frank. But we're in that bar one night and Frank always locked the front door and we could stay there till dawn. Well, he forgot to lock the front door. And it was about two 30 in the morning. And I was looking over his shoulder. I was talking to him like this and, looking over his shoulder and behind him was the door. And I see a car pull up a station wagon and a woman behind the wheel, maybe in her fifties and another woman with her, the woman on the passenger side got out and she come in and open door, come running in behind Frank Sinatra. She said, excuse me, excuse me. Do they have a jukebox in here? And Frank turned around and looked her right in the face, you know, and he said, I'm sorry. What did you say? She said, do they have a jukebox in here? And Frank looked around and looked around. And he said, no, 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 I don't think so. And he, aside said i'll sing for you she said no thanks and she turned around and she walked out <laughs> and never watched, knowing of course no he watched her like a little boy walk out the door he was watching her walk out the door and i said she obviously didn't recognize you he said maybe she did maybe she did <laughs> <laughs> and we laughed about that for the longest time it just shows you frank's sense of humor you know but he could laugh at himself you know Tom, the stories are tremendous, really great. You've had a what and are having a wonderful life. Truly, as I said at the outset, it's it's a fairy tale that you've lived. Well, this little boy, if I close my eyes, Michael, I've had a wonderful life. I have, and I thank God every day for that. But if I close my eyes, I honestly see a little boy with a shoe shine box trudging through the snow in the middle of winter, going from bar to bar, trying to make money shining shoes to help feed his brothers and sisters. And on all those bars was it the jukebox where Frank Sinatra was singing. And and I'm on my hands and knees the first time I heard his voice. And then to be able to travel the world with him, flying his private jet all over the world, and then to grace the same stage with Frank Sinatra and have you, him call you out for another bow. I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a dream come true. Uh, um, that's what the book is about. It's about that little boy shining shoes in a bar, hearing Frank Sinatra's voice, and then it takes you at the end of the book where he's carrying Frank's coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills. It's, uh, it's, it's, I thank God every night, every, every single night. Tom Dreesen is still standing. Tommy, that was excellent. Thank you so, so much. Wish you all good thank things. You. Thank you, Michael, and my best to your mom. Your mom is the sweetest woman in the oh, world. Oh, you're nice to say that. Make her day when she hears this. Tom Dreesen's book is called Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Listen to the Michael Smirconish program weekdays on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 and anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. 
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.